0: we are. Good to see you all again this morning. Again, we want to welcome those that are with us online. We are so grateful that you are a part of things this morning. Before I jump into the message, I just got to stop and celebrate what took place this last week. Um, we had, if you did not know it, uh, we had mega sports camp for our kids this past week. If you had a kid that attended or you were a volunteer, can you give me a shout here this morning? How many of you out there? What? It was a blast. We had we had 80 kids here. We had almost that many volunteers serving. It was nuts, so around here, Terry was excited. It was great, um, but it was really fun to see both. Uh, the lives transformed of some of these kids as they're responding uh, to Jesus and responding to what God's doing around here, but also to see the relationships that were formed and, and the life that occurred in this place. And man, if you have kids that missed out, trust me, they missed out. And so if we are able to do this ever again in the future, trust me, uh, you want to participate and be a part of this, both as a volunteer. I think the volunteers may have had more fun than the kids did this past week. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of great times, so... Awesome. Well, we are continuing in the series that we have been in throughout the summer as we're studying through the book of Daniel. And uh, the series we are in is Living in Babylon as we're studying through this. And uh, before we jump in, I got to tell you just a story here. This happened uh, two years ago. I I got two boys, Levi, who was in the third grade at the time, and Asher was in first grade at the time. So this was two years ago. And if you've ever had kids before, sometimes you're driving in a car, and they'll be sitting in the back seat, and you'll overhear conversations taking place in the back seat. You're like, what's going on back there? And I, I remember I'm driving, and I hear my two boys back there talking, and they're talking. They've been at school, mind you, okay, public school, uh, and they're talking about these different words they've learned, right? These certain four-letter words that they've learned. Now, they're not using the words, but they're just using the the reference for them, you know, and talking about these things. And I hear them, and my son Asher, he keeps talking about this specific word, and I'm like, I don't know that he knows what that word actually is. And and as a dad, I'm like, well, maybe he doesn't. I didn't know this, you know. So I kind of pull the mirror down. I'm like, hey, Asher bud, um, you keep saying the F word, something about the F word. I'm like, do you know what the F word actually is? And in honor of the movie, A Christmas Story, I'm going to change the word here for a second. But my son Asher, who's in the first grade at the time, with all the excitement in his eyes, said, Yeah, Dad, fudge! He just, it's smart, as if he answered the question correctly. Like, he was so excited. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, You got it, bud. That's that word. Let's not say that word anymore, you know? Just that moment. And you have those moments, so you're teaching moments with your kids, right? And there we know there's certain four-letter words we probably shouldn't use, like that's just not a good idea. But what I know in the church is there is a three-letter word that increasingly is a word that we avoid. It's a word we should be talking about, but we just don't very often. And this morning, we're going to dig into that. If you got your uh, Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, beginning of verse number 1, as uh, we're going to read just about six verses here. Uh, Just a reminder, we're in our Bible reading plan. If you've gotten off at all, jump on back in. Uh, You can click the link on our homepage if you want to join in with our reading plan as we're reading through the whole Bible this year. Would you stand with me across the room? This is what we do. It's just a a chance to honor God's word and say, God, we value your words more than my words. And so this is our primary text here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone." Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that you want to speak to us. So God, we we put away any distraction right now, any other things that's on our mind, and instead, God, we say we want to hear from you. Lord, give me the words to speak, give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You can be seated. Well, some of you probably can already guess the word I'm talking about, but the little three-letter word that oftentimes we avoid is sin. Sin. It's a word that I would say we, we don't necessarily like to talk about, and oftentimes, I said, in the modern church, we avoid talking about this. Why? Because it might make people feel bad, Right? might make people uncomfortable, so we shouldn't talk about sin, right? Instead, we'll use words like, oh, we made mistakes, or we just missed the mark a little bit, or, or we have maybe made some wrong choices, or maybe we just made some different choices, and we don't really like to talk about the idea of sin. And how many you know, outside of the church, they have a totally different view of sin, because they have no understanding or no view of transcendent truth, right? We talked about this several weeks ago, that, that the world increasingly with a postmodern mindset says there is no truth. There's no truth out there. Nope, there's nothing out there. And so as a result, what do they view sin as? They see sin as a religious construct that's designed to oppress people and to control their behavior, right? Us religious people get around and we call things sin just to suck the fun out of your life. That's what it is, Okay? But I said this also a few weeks ago, weeks ago, that we are not like those outside of the church. We are those who do believe in transcendent truth. We believe there is a transcendent God-given truth. We also believe there is a holy God who designed all things. He designed all things Good, right? And he designed humanity. He designed you and he designed me to live in freedom, fulfillment, zoe life. But where? Under his rule and under his authority. That's where the blessings found. That's where the good things are found. That's where the life, the zoe life is at. And every time we step outside of his rule, outside of his authority, outside of of what he has designed, and we choose rebellion over obedience that is sin that's what it is now sometimes it's the blatant things that we all know we like we would all call killing people a sin right that's a bad one don't do that we understand lying that's probably not a a good thing to do we understand you know committing adultery not a good thing to do and so sometimes sin is an issue of not doing certain things there are certain things and obviously there are lots of things that we would say ah we shouldn't do those things God said that's against his law right but it isn't just the things that we do, sometimes it's the things that we don't do. James talks about this, that, that the good, when you know something good you ought to do and you don't do it for you, that is sin. And we know as followers of Christ, what are we called to? What kind of a love? A self-sacrificing kind of love where we lay ourselves down. And so that means as a follower of Christ, when I choose not to do that and I say I'm not going to operate in love, instead I'm going to go a different direction, what is that? We are stepping outside of God's authority, his plan, and it is design. And for us, that is sin. Hunter talked about it a couple weeks ago, the sin of pride. When we get into a position in our life where suddenly we think we can do it on our own, it's not about, I don't need to depend on God, I don't need him, I can take care of this. And sometimes we don't say that, we just show it by the fact that we never go to God's word, we never go to him in prayer, we just live our lives on our own. And when we put ourselves in that position, that is sin that is actually taking us outside of God's authority. That's what we're talking about. And so sin is something that we absolutely need to get a hold of because it isn't just rule breaking. That's not what sin is. Sin is allegiance breaking. Saying, God, I'm stepping out from under your authority. I no longer give my allegiance to you. That's what sin looks like. And so we're going to dig into this story for a moment. I think we're going to see some things come out of it. So to to understand the entire chapter, it's a little long, so I'll kind of give you the cliff notes version of the story. You just read it. We got this king, Belshazzar. Who is that guy? We have been talking about King Nebuchadnezzar if you've been around. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is done. He's no longer the king. They've had several kings, and now we get to Belshazzar. He's now the king. And he's full of pride, just like Nebuchadnezzar was, doing his own thing. And so he throws this big party, big the hoopla. They're all doing this thing, and they're all in the drunken, crazy. Hey, we should get the gold and silver that we stole from the temple. Bring it over here. We'll drink out of those things. And so they're throwing this bash. They're having a party. And it says they start drinking this. And while they're drinking out of these goblets that were stolen from Jerusalem in the temple, uh, they begin to worship the gods of gold and silver and says, obviously, this, this, it's kind of a creepy, it sounds like a creepy movie, you know, a wall, a hand appears and starts writing on the wall, and he has this lucid moment, even though they're in a drunken craze, he has this lucid moment where he understands something is going on, God is trying to speak to me, and I have no idea what he's saying right now, and so he goes, and he gets all the people to come try and decipher what this thing is, and nobody can decipher the thing, but the queen was old enough uh, to remember this man, Daniel, Years ago, there was this guy, Daniel, who could discern dreams and and interpret things like that. You need to call him. He'll be able to tell you what this is. So they bring Daniel in, and Daniel looks at the reading, and and he's like, can you interpret that? He's like, yep, I can. He's like, awesome. I'll give you all this money. He's like, I don't want your money. I'm just going to tell you because God's talking to you. And he tells him, listen, you knew, king. Belshazzar, you knew about the stories of Nebuchadnezzar. If you've been around here in this series, what, what was What took place under Nebuchadnezzar's life? Multiple times there was this arrogance that welled up in him. And in fact, the story that we read two weeks ago, he was so arrogant and and God said, listen, I'm sending you out. I'm making you crazy. I'm going to send you out into the wilderness for seven years. And, And Nebuchadnezzar was sent out to live amongst the animals for seven years out of his mind. And finally got to a place of humility and laid himself down, surrendered himself before God. God restores his mind and brings him back into control. And he worships and honors God. And what Daniel says is, listen, King Belshazzar, you heard that story. You knew about his arrogance, what God did, and yet you're acting the same way. You're acting in arrogance and pride. It's all about you. You think you're the one in control. And he says, as a result, you're going to be destroyed. And he says there's three words that are written here on the wall, and there's three different words you need to understand. The first one means this. It means numbered. Your days as king are numbered. Your reign is about to end. Second word means this, weighed. You've been put on a scale, right? You've been put on a scale, and you've been shown to be deficient. And third word is this, divided. Your kingdom is about to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And it says in the story, that's exactly what happens that night. Uh, The Persians come in and take over and destroy the city of Babylon and the nation. They take over and they become the powerhouse and that king that night is killed. So that's the story we got going on. And we're going to see how this relates, the concept of this story, how it relates to this issue of sin and why it is that we need to be so serious about this. One of the reasons we have to be so focused on this idea and concept of sin is because this is something Jesus was very forceful about. Uh, When you you see Jesus talk about sin, there's a there's a passage in the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is talking about sin and he says, "Uh, You've heard it said, you know, you know, thou shalt not uh, uh, commit adultery, right? He says, But I say you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already done that in your heart. And Jesus draws the line, he says, Listen, sin is a big deal. But he goes even further, and if you know the passage of Scripture, you know where I'm going here in Matthew uh, chapter 5. Here's what it says. It says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Like, that's pretty serious. Why? Even if you're committing adultery, not, not that you've committed adultery with your body. You've done it with your heart. What should you gouge it out? Why? Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, the modern church would say, whoa, Jesus, like that's a little over the top. But I don't think we should tell Jesus that. (laughs) I think we should heed Jesus' warning when he says you should take this thing of sin seriously. You need to understand that this matters. This has eternal consequences in our life. And as your pastor, I don't look forward to, to preaching hard messages on sin. But if I don't, I don't really love you. I don't care about you. And that's not true. I do care about you. And so this morning is a warning. This morning is a shakeup. It's not just for you, trust me. This one's for me as well. But all of us have to understand the importance of this topic and this idea of sin, all right? And so if you're taking notes this morning, I think there's a few things you're going to want to write down. The first thing we're going to look at is this, point one, is this. Sin numbs. Sin numbs. Nums. You ever had your hand or your, your foot fall asleep before? You know, you have that happen before? It happens to me all the time. I, I've got problems with that, I fall asleep. Like if I'm sleeping, you ever done this where I sleep like this and I wake up and it's like dead arm, you know? You throw your arm over the bed, you know? It's like Tim Conway for those who are old enough to know that reference. It's one of the greatest sketches of all time, okay? The kids are totally confused right now. So... So this happens to me all the time. So like I will, like when I sit down, I will cross my leg sometimes because I'm bored and I'm, you know, like cross my leg. If you've had this happen before, you're sitting there for a while, and all of a sudden you realize my foot's dead. Ah, shoot, foot's dead. I'm walking around stomping my foot trying to get the thing out to die. But I would have moved my foot if I knew it was going numb. Problem is I didn't realize it was going numb. I didn't realize until it, it was too late. Sin numbs. It puts you in a very dangerous position. See, when you look at this story, it's kind of crazy. So you got this king, King Belshazzar. He's sitting there throwing a party. Hoopla, they're all drunk and a craze, whatever. What you need to understand is the history of what was taking place at this exact moment. The Persians were were trying to take over Babylon at this time in history. They were coming to try and destroy them. And the Persians were actually outside of the wall at this exact moment. So the king is inside the walls... Why? Because he thought the walls of our city are so strong, nobody could ever get in. We've got 20 years of resources, that's what they say, 20 years of resources inside the walls. They had plenty of stuff, and on top of that, there was a river that flowed, and it would flow under the wall of the city, go through the city, and then back out again. They had everything they needed. They were so arrogant and so prideful, they thought nobody could ever take us out. And in a drunken stupor, they're throwing a party. And on that very night, you know what takes place? The Persians divert the waters of the river. They dig a canal to run it a different way. As the water drops, the Persians go under the wall, come into the city in the middle of the night, and take over the strongest and most powerful uh, kingdom in the entire world at that time. They take it over, in one night the king is killed, and it takes virtually nothing. Why? Because their arrogance put them in a place of numbness. They didn't even recognize what was going on. They were oblivious to what is happening around them. And I say this to us because sin does the same thing in our lives. It puts us in a position. Remember this past winter, we talked about compromise breeds compromise? When we compromise in an area of our life, it breeds more compromise. Sin is the same way, sin breeds sin. When we allow sin into our life, we become numb to it. When we ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we think, oh, I must be doing okay. I don't have any conviction. No, I would say, warning sign if you have no conviction. You've become numb to the voice of the Spirit because you have told him no so many times, you don't listen anymore. And sometimes we get to these places where we're like, man, I must be doing pretty good in my faith. Like I'm not really feeling it. If you're taking your life up against the word of God and you see conflict there and you have no conviction, you need to get your heart before him again because it's possible you have grown numb to the things that matter most. Are you numb right now? I know there's times in our faith where maybe there was a period where you have felt conviction around something in your life. But you've got to this point in your life and, and you find yourself doing that thing that you used to have conviction around. You possibly have gotten numb. Maybe there's some good things that you knew you should do. You should, pursue, you should love your spouse selflessly. You should lay yourself down. You should die to yourself around your spouse. But you're treating them like a jerk these days. You don't even feel bad about it. You've gotten numb to the realities of your sin. You've gotten numb to the reality of, of what you've allowed into your life. And we have to be aware of that, that sin numbs. It's just what it does. Are you numb in your life in some way? That's point number one. Number two, if you're taking notes here, is this. Sin Offends, sin offends. It doesn't just numb; it offends. If you were here this past week for sports camp, you're gonna know what I'm talking about. Because on Wednesday, Wednesday we had rain around here. Praise God! We need more rain. Keep praying for rain. Okay, I know we got farmers that are in desperate need of some rain around here. But it was it rained a little bit on Wednesday, and so we decided we had to move everything into uh, the building for the night. And so the girls were in here, all the cute little, rosy-smelling girls we were in this room while they did some dance and stuff like that. And all the smed- smelly, disgusting boys were on the other end of the building doing football inside the building. And they had been going at it for about 20 or 30 minutes, and I walk into that room, oh, my word. <laughs> the rank in that room, it was <laughs> disgusting. It was like you hit a wall. You walked in, like, whoa, no, nope, we're done. <laughs> Good volunteers, you just stay in there. That's fine. It was awful, right? It was offensive, Okay. <laughs> When it comes to our sin, our sin offends other people. Like when I hurt someone and I sin against somebody, it offends them. And we unknowingly, our sin sometimes can offend ourselves where it destroys us and corrupts us and someone, but so often we ignore the reality that our sin is an offense to God. We don't recognize it. We're thinking about how this is going on here and never once reeling really how this is causing an offense to the God who is holy and righteous and has called us to live a different kind of life. See, this is what it says in Daniel 5, verse verse 23. As he approaches, Daniel's talking to Belshazzar. What does he say to him? You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. That's what it means to sin. As we step outside of the authority of God, we are saying, I am the authority. He no longer is. And when we begin to realize that that's what sin really is doing in us, that's the attitude we're having, then maybe we would start to treat it a little bit differently, take it a little more seriously. David understood this. Some of you know the story of David. We always talk about, I want to be a man. And I'm like, David, I want to be a man after God's own heart. That's what I want to be. But you know the story. What? David's sitting up on his roof. He sees this good-looking lady. And like, oh, mm, she's fine. And so he's, he says, bring that woman over here. She has, he has sex with this woman. And then proceeds to have this woman's husband killed to try and cover the whole thing up. Right? Really good dude. Okay? And, and so, so we would see this moment and say, man, he has really sinned against these people. Right? But this is how he writes about this in Psalm 51. You know, the prophet Nathan comes to David, confronts him, and this psalm is written out of that. It's his heart speaking to this, and here's what it says here in Psalm 51. He says, for I know my transgression, my sin, and my sin is always before me, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is he saying, I I would read this, I'm like, dude, you sinned against that woman. (laughs) You forced her right? You sinned against that man. You killed him. And David would say, yeah, I understand that I've sinned. But even greater than that, I've sinned against my God. And how often do we not have that perspective? We see our sin as just these little things. Uh, I should have done that. Uh, I shouldn't have done that, right? Instead of saying, man, God, I have sinned against you. God, I've sinned against you. I think about it. There's times when you just say, "Oh, I just told a little lie." Yeah, you told a little lie. That's fine. They might be fine with it, whatever. But have you have you re- repented before God? Have you have you asked God to forgive you because you've you've operated in a way in con- a conflict with his desire for your life? You might think, "Oh, I just got a little drunk." Got a little drunk. I had a driver for me. That's fine. I'm glad you got home safe. That's good. But God says, "Don't get drunk with wine." So, where are you at? because that's something you need to say, God, I've, I've sinned against you. I don't like to think that way, but that's the reality. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against what you've desired for me. You know, we think about gossip, you know. Gossip, has anybody ever prayer gossiped before, right? You know what prayer gossip looks like. Hey, I, let's pray for Sarah. Have you heard about Sarah? <laughs> we should pray for her. She's got a lot going on, you know. And we treat gossip so low, like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not hurting me. Yeah, but do you understand that that's what God commands us not to do? And as a result, when we engage in gossip, we aren't just offending that person and ourselves. We are offending a holy, righteous God who had said, don't operate that way. We stepped outside of his authority, and we've acted like we treated carelessly. What we have to understand is that sin offends Like, it offends God. It is not something to play around with, to dance around with. Let's see how close we can get. And I get it. Uh, We like to think, oh, kids, don't play around with sin. Hey, us adults, we do the same thing. Us adults, we do the same thing. We get careless because we're mature, and we're not going to get caught up in those things. I'm not going to have the problem my teenage daughter's going to have. Oh, you probably will, because sin does the same thing to everybody. It kills things. That's what it does. It destroys. It corrupts. Yet we get so callous to this. The numbness of of what sin does in our lives gets us to a place where we don't even realize that we're offending a holy God. Sin numbs. Sin offends. And lastly, sin condemns. I need you to stay with me on this one. Sin condemns. Your sin, it puts us in a place of condemnation. Apart from Christ, sin condemns us. What is the word that he says? Tekel, that's the word. He says, what did that word tekel mean? It means weighed. It means you have been weighed. That's what God says to this man. You've been weighed and you've been found deficient. You've been weighed and you've been found deficient. Some of us out here, some of us like to avoid scales. We don't like to get on scales, okay? But if your righteousness was put on a scale, your righteousness, doesn't matter how good you think you are if your righteousness is put on a scale you would be found deficient okay if I'm on my own my righteousness is put before a holy God I am deficient I do not have what I need sin does that it condemns us we all are familiar with the verse right Romans six twenty three. what does it say for the wages of sin is death the paycheck of sin is death what you deserve because of sin is death It isn't that we're slightly bad, people. It isn't that we have some issues in our life, right? It isn't that we just need to clean a few things up. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And there's nothing in them of ourselves that we can do to save ourselves. Like, I I know I like to think I'm pretty good, but sin doesn't teach that I'm pretty good. Sin teaches that I am dead, that I am lost apart from Christ, And and I say this regularly, that until we understand the gravity of our sin, we'll never grasp the beauty of the cross, okay? Until we recognize the death our sin deserves, we'll never appreciate our Savior who took our place. That's why the gospel is good news. It's the bad news of our sin that leads us to the good news of the gospel, And where our sin condemns, right? Our sin, it condemns us. What does it say in Romans chapter 8? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the spirit of the law which brings life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's the gospel. There is life. There is good news. The good news of the grace of God. What is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Okay? And yet we still... Need to talk about one more thing. And this is our big so what. We always say so what. What's the point of this thing? If you forget everything else that I've shared this morning, here's the one thing I want you to take hold of. It's this. Grace demands repentance. Grace demands repentance. We love to talk about grace, right? We love to talk about grace. It feels good to talk about grace. Sing about grace. Amazing grace. It just feels good. And the grace of God is that good. Why? Because it's giving us things we don't deserve. That's what the gospel is. It's receiving things that we can never earn for ourselves. There's nothing we could do to deserve or earn the grace of God. It is a free gift. But it's a gift that must be received. And the only way we receive is through repentance. Right? It demands repentance. Some people I say, well, Greg, we don't live under law. We live under grace. Right? Yes, you're right, we do. But grace demands repentance. What is repentance? Repentance first and foremost is this, it's it's acknowledging and agreeing with God. Saying, God, I agree with that. And repentance is a change of mind. And what does that mean? It says, God, I agree that that sin is sin. That that thing is against you. I agree with that, and I change my mind or I turn from that thing. There's an action this is isn't just an agreement, it's an action, it's a change of directions. And hear this, if there's no turning, there's no repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no grace. Grace demands repentance. You hear me say this all the time, you can't just add Jesus to your life. Just expect perfection, you gotta turn, you can never make ever sin again. No, that's not what that is. That's why, think, that's why God sent Christ in the first place. It's our desperate need for a savior. But if we, we say, oh, I'm just going to add Jesus to my life, and I'm going to carry on like everything else. I'm just going to do things like I've always done them. Then the book of James would say, you need to be very careful. <laughs> because that probably is not a saving faith. James talks about this. He says, listen, faith without works is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. If there is no action to accompany what you are saying, that is not a saving faith. And so we simply come to Jesus and say, yeah, God, I give you my life, but we do everything we've always done. We're not repentant. We're not turning from things. We're doing what we've always done. Then that is not a saving faith. And we're putting ourselves in dangerous position. And this is why I come to you, not because I want to talk about this, but because it is desperately needed. Because it would break my heart that someone would come to church week after week after week after week, doing the religious thing, showing up, singing the songs, and carry on with life as if it doesn't matter. Saying, yep, you're my Lord, but never actually making him Lord over their life. Never looking to submit, never looking to actually repent. If you are in that place, you are in a dangerous position. And I come to you with love saying, please, please turn. You are going the wrong direction. For the sake of your eternity, we need to turn to God. Turn to him in complete surrender, repenting completely of our sin. This morning, there's some of you here. I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment to respond. And this is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you to turn your life over to Christ. To truly submit yourself to Christ. To lay yourself down. To repent. To acknowledge that the sin in your life truly is sin and that you need to turn from that. Not turning toward perfection, right? Turning away from sin and pursuing Him, knowing that His grace is sufficient. All right? But there's another group that I want to talk to, and and that's the rest of us who would consider ourselves followers of Christ. And here's why I want to talk to us, and it's this: it's because repentance isn't a moment, it's a lifestyle. Repentance isn't a moment, it's a lifestyle. It isn't this moment way back in my history. I can point back to that one time when I repented and turned to God. No, repentance is a lifestyle. Psalm 139 talks about this. It's written in, there's this passage that says, search my heart of God, see if there's any offensive way in me, if any, any wickedness in me. See, that's what a follower of Christ does. We don't just say, hey, there's that one moment. A follower of Christ is one who, who is constantly not just turning away from but turning toward. Constantly turning. God, if there's any wicked way in me, would you show that to me? And when you reveal that to me by the power of your spirit, I'm gonna turn from that thing and I'm gonna pursue you more. I'm gonna run after you more. I'm gonna desire to be shaped more into your image, to look more and more like you. God, would you do that in my heart? Would you shape me? I'm not passively waiting until I do some disastrous sin in my life, right? I'm not waiting for that moment. I'm pursuing you. I'm saying, God, where is it? What's in my life? Where do I need to change? God, where do I need to be shaped? Where do I need to be transformed? God, would you reveal that? Would you speak? God, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's my lifestyle to repent, to turn away and to turn toward, to turn away and to turn toward, so that we, as it says in Romans, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. It demands repentance. Grace demands repentance. One of my favorite verses passage is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it comes off of Hebrews chapter 11. And what happens in Hebrews chapter 11? He talks about all these amazing men of faith, these amazing stories of faith, like what God, how they were pursued God. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, and it starts this way. It says, it's therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and remember all these people he's been talking about, these amazing people of faith, since we're surrounded by them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles this is written an acknowledgement of the reality of what sin does to us it messes us up it numbs us it takes us the wrong way and he's saying don't just sit around and wait no throw it off like the stuff that gets in the way pursue it throw it off repent get rid of that stuff but it goes on and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on jesus that's don't you need to change your mindset of repentance because when we only have the mindset that says i need to turn away from doing really bad things that's what repentance is for then we don't think it's for us but what happens to us in faith you get this idea of 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 repentance early in your faith right remember that you first came to faith and you were repentant of all this stuff and man there was this trajectory of your faith was just so fast Really quickly, there was just a transformation that took place. But you know what happens? We stop repenting, because we think that was for them, and we start looking around at other Christians. And we look around at other Christians and say, eh, I'm doing all right. Not as bad as that guy, you know. And we stop coming to God and saying, God, would you shine a light on me? And what happens? We grow cold and we grow numb. And there isn't the transformation That God desires for us. Listen, he's not done with you yet. (laughs) I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been serving Jesus. You've been serving Jesus for two months. You've been serving him for 50 years. He's not done with you yet. There's more of his character that he wants revealed in you. There's more that he wants to do in you. There's more that he wants to do through you. But we have to be a posture that says, God, I want to turn, and I want to turn toward you, to pursue you, to run after you. God, would you do that in me? I'm going to give us all an opportunity to respond in a moment, but right now I want, to, I want to talk to those who need to repent for the very first time and say, God, I need to give you my life. Or maybe you've walked away from him and you need to recommit your life to Christ. I'm going to do that right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes across the room?